Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? So in a couple of months, we're going to be at a full year since Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook, the company, would change its name to Meta. And that would act as a sort of parent company for products like Facebook, the social media platform, as well as Instagram, WhatsApp, etc. As to why Zuckerberg and company wanted to change the name, there are a lot of possible reasons. Some of them range to the cynical, such as, you know, the name Facebook has a sort of stigma attached to it, and the company would really like to distance itself from that, uh, to the practical. You know, Facebook is just one of many products that this company offers, so it is kind of confusing if you if you call the company the same name as just one of the things it offers, all the way to the aspirational, that Meta 
is a reference to the apparently unavoidable approach of the metaverse that we cannot escape if we wanted to. Now, the metaverse as a concept is, I would argue, still pretty wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey, as the doctor would say. Uh, There's kind of a general idea about what it will be, you know, some sort of persistent online interactive and immersive environment. On the more modest side, this could potentially just be the next big evolutionary step in online social networks. On the more grandiose side, the metaverse could be the new way we interact online with everything. I mean, it wouldn't just be how we socialize or entertain ourselves. It might dominate how we interact at work. You know, we might attend virtual meetings in a virtual meeting room. It could dominate how we shop as we peruse virtual aisles. And it would be essentially everything. It would be the virtual equivalent of the real world around us. Now, if you extend that vision to dystopic proportions, you get something like Ready Player One by Ernest Cline or Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. And for the record, I personally prefer Snow Crash. Now, many, though not all, uh, conceptualizations of the metaverse incorporate virtual reality or VR in an intrinsic way. So this concept has users donning virtual reality gear so that they can really immerse themselves into this persistent virtual world. So I thought I would chat a little bit about some of the challenges that have accompanied virtual reality because I think it's good to acknowledge the hurdles before you rush headlong into an uncertain future. If you don't acknowledge the challenges that are in the way, then it's just going to make it more difficult to address those challenges when the time comes. So I want to really do that in this episode and talk about the things I see as being barriers to entry for the metaverse in the future. Now, by the time the metaverse is actually a thing, which will probably be maybe a decade from now, it's quite possible that all of these issues will have been solved. But without talking about them, (laughs) it's hard to, you know, come up with solutions. So first of all, let's define some terms. What is virtual reality? Well, unlike the metaverse, this is something that we can more easily define. Uh, We typically credit Jaron Lanier with coining the phrase virtual reality. Lanier has done incredible work in computer science and in virtual environments. But the fact is there were earlier concepts similar to what we call virtual reality. Some of them had names like artificial reality. Anyway, the basic idea when you boil it down is that you're using technology to surround a user with a computer-generated environment or a computer-generated reality. So it should be immersive and it should also be interactive because if the environment is not interactive, it feels like you're standing in a still photograph of the environment. You wouldn't be able to do anything and your sense of immersion would very quickly kind of crumble. Uh, like the most you might be able to do in such a primitive implementation is to change your point of view by moving your head around, but otherwise your options would be really limited. So for it to be a real virtual reality experience, you need to have some sort of agency within the environment, some way to interact with the computer-generated environment that's around you. Now, virtual reality is a subset of a technology we call mixed reality, and this is a term that would come a little bit later, But it was really meant to help contextualize the spectrum between virtual reality and augmented reality. 
Okay, so in an ideal virtual reality implementation, we're talking something like the holodeck in Star Trek. Everything that the user senses would be provided by the computer. So that would include not just whatever the user is seeing and hearing, but also what they can touch and smell and maybe even taste as well. But ultimately, all the stuff that the user is experiencing wouldn't be quote-unquote real. They would be computer-generated. It would be a simulation of the real. Augmented reality, or AR, on the other hand, uses a computer to enhance or augment your experience in the real world. It's an overlay of digital technology on top of what you're really experiencing. So a common example is imagine you've got a pair of glasses that let you see the world around you. So it's got transparent lenses. You can look around and see everything. But those lenses can also overlay digital information within your view of the world around you. So maybe you're using the glasses to display turn-by-turn directions as you make your way to a destination. So you could see the directions, but you can also see through the directions to the real world and beyond. And that, you know, is kind of like heads-up displays in military aircraft. They've had these for for many years now. That's an example of augmented reality. And like virtual reality, augmented reality doesn't just have to be tied to vision. More often than not, that's how we see these implementations, but it doesn't have to be vision-based at all. It could include sound. It could include other sensations as well, like uh, tactile feedback or what we call haptic feedback. The important bit is that a computer is generating the things that you are sensing in order to give you more information or enhance your experience within your real-world environment. Not to replace it, but to enhance it. So a great augmented reality implementation shouldn't distract you from what's actually going on around you, which is easier said than done. Because often we like to put cool stuff in our tech, and that cool stuff might ultimately prove to be a distraction from the real world, which is kind of defeating the purpose of augmented reality. But back to virtual reality. Now, in the 80s and 90s, which I'm sure some of you remember, some of you listeners out there are probably around my age or maybe even older, and you might remember what virtual reality was like when it was debuting in the late 80s and into the early to mid-90s. The technology that could bring virtual reality out of the hypothetical concept phase and into a primitive but working model was really taking shape, and it required a ton of work. I do not want to be dismissive of the incredible technological innovation that was required to make virtual reality possible. When you start thinking about all the different elements that have to come into play, that you have to have various types of accelerometers and sensors to be able to tell when someone is turning their head, to what degree, at what speed, you know, and be able to reflect that in the view that's get sent to the user, like that alone blows my mind. It is a, a not an easy thing to solve, at least not initially. And it required so much work. Head-mounted displays needed to be able to really track a person's head movements accurately and with as little latency as possible. Latency is delay. Uh, If you've ever played a bad video game where you push a button and there's a delay before anything happens, uh, you know how latency can be frustrating. There's there's kind of a similar issue. It's not, we wouldn't call it latency, but occasionally you might watch a video where the audio is out of sync with the video where you might see someone 
moving their mouth, but there's no voice coming out. And then a couple seconds later, you hear the voice. That is an incredibly frustrating experience to to try and watch a video where this problem has arisen. Imagine that, but it's with a a first person experience you're having. Imagine that the world around you is having this weird delay. So with virtual reality and you know generally just mixed reality, latency can really spell disaster or could at least spell the need for a cleanup on aisle three. Because if there's a delay between when you turn your head and when the environment you're looking at matches that motion, in other words, when your, your perspective matches what you're physically doing, if there's a delay between those things, you get this unpleasant swimming sensation that often can lead to motion sickness. Other aspects of VR can also provoke a motion sickness response. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later in this episode. But yeah, that's one of the the big things that early VR researchers were trying to minimize is that latency. So in the early days of VR, things were really primitive. Uh, The equipment was incredibly expensive. Uh, Most of the time you're talking about stuff that's custom made for a research project. You could try to pull things off the shelf and incorporate them into your designs, but it's just that no one was making these things like head-mounted displays uh, as a commercial product, so you had to do it all yourself. You know, you might cobble it together with existing stuff to make it happen, but it still was a, a lot of labor. The equipment was really bulky. Uh, the resolutions were r- really low, so you were talking about very simple graphics because you just couldn't pull off anything complex. And lots of folks who were working in the field really were focusing on specific applications that would converge into the technology of virtual reality. But there was so much to be done, right? Like it's it's the sort of thing where you couldn't have one person pioneer everything. You had to have lots of different specialists to kind of get all the pieces to fit. Unfortunately, while this was taking shape, and as amazing as it was, it just wasn't ready for prime time, But the more hype-minded folks would step in, and they kind of messed everything up. See, early virtual reality worked in a manner of fashion, but it wasn't sophisticated. And, you know, if you were looking at it as a form of entertainment, it wasn't necessarily satisfying. Uh, Head-mounted displays were really heavy. I mean, we're talking about before flat panel displays really became a thing. So you were wearing effectively a small monitor on your face, and that was too heavy for a person to wear comfortably for any length of time. So a lot of early VR systems used displays that were in turn suspended from a rig that was, you know, mounted on the ceiling. You know, you would have this grid where you would have uh, cables come down and support at least some of the weight of the headset so that a person could wear it without, you know, crumpling to the ground. But that also limited the user's movement, right? They couldn't walk around with these things because they were tethered to uh, these rigs that helped support the weight. That obviously limits the VR experience somewhat. Doesn't mean that the technology wasn't incredible, just means that maybe it wasn't the right thing to spring on the public, Now, on top of all that, compute power and graphics processing were nowhere close to where they are today. So rendering graphics takes a lot of juice. 
you know, it takes a lot of processing power. And so early VR implementations were incredibly primitive compared to the video games of today. In fact, they were primitive compared to the video games of the time. Like if you were to play a best of class computer game at the same time as the ex- experience a, a, a VR game like Dactyl Nightmare, you would say, wow, these graphics are terrible compared to what I can play at home. And the stuff that you could play at home back at that time doesn't even come close to measuring up with what we can achieve today. So it would take a lot of time to develop software and hardware approaches that could create a high-resolution experience. Now, I I mentioned Dactyl Nightmare just now. When we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it because I feel that that experience really kind of illustrates the limitations of virtual reality during its first phase and help explain why VR ended up having uh, a long period where no one was really talking about it. But first, let's take this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. 
No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Okay, let's talk about Dactyl Nightmare. Now, this was a VR experience that debuted in 1991, and it's a great example of a simple, early, and primitive VR game. Now, the way I experienced this was that there was a shopping mall about half an hour away from where I lived at the time as a kid, a teenager, where you would go and there was this one storefront that had been turned into a VR arcade. I think they had maybe four pedestals where you would get up on the pedestal. Uh, there'd be a ring that would close around you so it would limit your movement. That way you wouldn't walk off the pedestal and trip and fall and break your leg and sue the store or whatever. Uh, you had those ginormous headsets that were partially suspended from the ceiling to help take off some of the weight. And you played a couple of different games, the main one being Dactyl Nightmare. Um the virtual world in Dactyl Nightmare consists of just five platforms in an otherwise featureless void. So it's just darkness all around you in these five platforms. You have one platform at the center, and the other four platforms are bordering the center one. So there's one on each side. And they're slightly higher up than the center platform, and there's a staircase leading from each of the bordering platforms down to the center. And it was a first-person shooter game. At least usually that's the way it was. There were a couple of other modes in it, but it was a first-person shooter game and players were represented as crude polygonal people, bipedal things. And occasionally another crude polygonal flying creature, the so-called dactyl, pterodactyl, would swoop in and grab a player and fly off with them and then drop them. Uh, if you do an image search for dactyl nightmare, you'll see what I'm talking about. And I, again, I don't want to dismiss these early attempts at virtual reality. So to achieve something like Dactyl Nightmare took a ton of work. Uh, I think the mistake was trying to bring VR in its state in the early 90s to market a little too soon. Because people who experienced games like Dactyl Nightmare had varying reactions. I mean, there were some folks who did it and they saw the promise of VR. And they said, well, this is a really cool idea, and I can't wait to see what it looks like when the tech has matured, right? Like they're saying, this is clearly not where it needs to be right now, but I can't wait to see where it evolves. There were a lot of other people, I think the vast majority, who their reaction kind of boiled down to, this is awful. I can't believe people were making such a big deal out of this. This is just a fad. Now, in previous episodes of Tech Stuff, I've talked about the Gartner hype cycle. Uh, the company Gartner created a sort of a graphical representation of the process that a, an emerging technology tends to go through with regard to hype. So this doesn't necessarily relate directly to the capabilities of the technology as much as how we perceive and treat the tech, how much our expectations can often exceed whatever the tech is really capable of doing. So early on in an emerging technology's life cycle or hype cycle, the interest in the technology skyrockets. That's what we saw with VR in the early 90s. People start blue-skying how the tech is going to change everything. And in fact, I would argue we were in that phase with the metaverse last year or you know, late last year, maybe early this year. And some companies still, I think, are, but I think a lot of other people feel they've already 
past the peak of hype and are on the downward slope at this point. Some of us, anyway. I know I am. Now, generally in this cycle, you have what is called the peak of inflated expectations. This is the highest point of hype where your belief in the tech is well beyond what the tech can deliver. We saw this with autonomous car technology. I was definitely guilty of this, where I was convinced that we were maybe a year or two away from autonomous cars revolutionizing the way we get around and and virtually eliminating things like uh, vehicular accidents and deaths. That was sadly wildly too optimistic. It was incredibly naive, and I, I fully own up to that. So as the name suggests, the peak of inflated expectations, we sort of have this realization that the tech that we were so hyped for can't possibly live up to the hype that we've bought into, maybe even hype that we ourselves have generated. So our excitement for the technology then comes crashing down. It bottoms out in what Gartner refers to as the trough of disillusionment. But then once we hit rock bottom, once we've, you know, kind of woken up to the fact that we placed ridiculous expectations on this technology, we can then better evaluate what the tech actually can and can't do. And maybe we start to get a little excited again. Now, we're not going to go as crazy as we were in the beginning, but we might get a little more optimistic. And this is the slope of enlightenment. And then we hit the plateau of productivity. This is where our expectations for the tech and the actual capabilities of the tech finally level out. And we can actually be productive with the technology. We're no longer, you know, throwing out hyperbole about what the technology is going to be capable of doing. Uh, And I, I think we're a ways away from that with the metaverse, largely because, again, we we don't even have a full satisfactory definition of what the metaverse is going to be yet. So it's kind of hard to get to the plateau of productivity. Um, but a lot of us, I think, are a little more disillusioned by the promise of the metaverse than, uh, than uh, hyped for it. Anyway, once folks got a good look at what VR could and more importantly couldn't do back in the 90s, we hit that trough of disillusionment real hard. And for the scientists and engineers and programmers and such who were working in the VR field, that was a total disaster. Uh, That sudden decline in interest meant that it was really hard to get financial support to do research work in the field because like, it just wasn't popular. If something's not popular and people have turned against it, it's very hard to convince the folks who manage money to pour it into that field. So some folks who were researching ways to use VR in, say, therapy, found themselves cobbling together systems from video game components. Video game consoles became like a popular go-to source to kind of jerry-rig a VR system out of all these different parts. So that was still happening. There was still great work being done in R&D, But the general consensus was there was no money to be made in creating full systems. So it's not like you could just go and buy a virtual reality system off the shelf. And to be clear, like when I was talking about Dactyl Nightmare, we weren't talking about home virtual reality at all then. This was these were systems that were far too large and bulky and unwieldy and expensive for the average person to get one and have it installed in their home. VR continued in these years, but in a much more modest way. And there were a few attempts to bring VR into home gaming, but most of those, like, for example, there was a planned VR set that was meant for the Sega Genesis. 
a lot of those would get shelved. They ultimately just decided that this was too much work and too much expense and there wasn't going to be enough payoff. And those projects were largely abandoned. Now, flash forward more than a decade until we get to 2009. Palmer Lucky, the creator of Oculus, had started building head-mounted displays. Now, at this point, technology had improved significantly. Flat panel displays were a possibility that really brought down the bulk and weight of headsets. Uh, the development of powerful processors for smartphones would ultimately be leveraged to handle processing for a lot of VR systems, which helped reduce latency and boost resolution and also increase your field of view. That's how many degrees of uh, vision you have uh, from side to side within a, a mixed reality headset. Now, in 2012, Palmer Lucky launched a Kickstarter to fund the development and manufacture of the first Oculus developer kit. And it would be an oversimplification to say that the Oculus solely made VR a viable possibility again. That's that's dismissing tons of work from other people and other companies. However, the Oculus, I think, would you could argue was easily the most visible example of VR technology that could at least approach the old promise of VR and make something that was a decent implementation of that promise. So the dreams of the 80s and 90s were unrealistic at the time, but the Oculus seemed to be a little bit closer to what we were hoping for, you know, a couple decades earlier. Other manufacturers would start to make VR headsets too, and there was a push to develop better systems, uh, including ones that would be self-contained and others that would require a PC to run software, while the VR system would kind of act as your display and input device. Now, early on, there were a few big obstacles standing in the way of VR adoption. Uh, one is that the really early VR headsets in this era, the, the being like the 2012 to say 2016 or so, most of them required a physical connection to a PC if you wanted to actually use them. Uh, so like the VR systems from the 80s and 90s, it just wasn't quite possible to have a really powerful VR headset that could stand on its own. It was, you know, disconnected from any other piece of equipment. So it had to tap into the superior processing power, particularly for graphics processing, that a PC could provide. That meant that that provided two other limitations uh, that would come along with this requirement. One would be that a user would be physically tethered to a computer. There would be a cable connecting their headset to the computer system. That would limit their movement. Um, they could potentially get tangled up in cables. That could be awkward or even dangerous. So it really was a limitation in the technology, one that programmers would really have to take into account when they were creating their VR experiences. Like you wouldn't want to create a VR game, for example, that would require people to have to physically turn around frequently because potentially you're just talking about tangling them up in wires. I mean, maybe if you're sadistic and also a game developer, you'd want to do that. But, you know, ethical programmers wouldn't. But the other big hurdle on top of this tethering was and is cost. Now, Oculus offered a couple of different developer kit models during its crowdfunding phase where you're talking about relatively low costs. I mean, in the early, early days of Oculus. So these developer kits were intended to go to people who would create VR experiences. 
right? It was meant for people who wanted to build stuff that folks could experience within VR. This was not meant as a consumer model. However, obviously there were a lot of gamers who really just wanted to get their hands on the next cool toy. They wanted a developer kit, not because they planned on making anything, but because they wanted to experience stuff. Now, that first developer kit was available if you backed the original Kickstarter campaign, and I believe it was a $300 level or higher. Uh, That's actually on the cheap side for VR hardware, but then in those days, there wasn't much you could do with it anyway. You'd have the hardware, but there wasn't a whole lot of software to run on it. So the whole point was that this tech was really just meant to help developers create compelling content for the system, because without the content, it's really hard to sell the system. This is the same thing we've seen with video game consoles. Uh, In fact, I think that the most recent Xbox console really suffered from this problem, that there was a perception that the Xbox Series X uh, lacked enough exclusive, compelling content to justify buying the console. Whereas people were looking at the PlayStation 5 and saying, there's a long list of exclusive titles for this this console. There, There's a great library of content. I want a PS5. Uh, and so getting a good library of content is absolutely critical in order to sell a platform. Now, when Oculus launched its original consumer model, so this is beyond the developer kits, this is when they're ready to actually go to the store shelves, the first Oculus headset released by Oculus itself was the Rift, and the asking price was 600 bucks. Now, you're talking about the cost of a full video game console system. And keep in mind, this is without the PC you would need to actually run the ding-dang-darn thing. Oculus was recommending that users have a PC with at least 8 gigabytes of RAM uh, and the equivalent of an Intel i3-6100 CPU and a GeForce GTX 960 or AMD FX 4350 graphics card or better, as well as Windows 8 or more recent uh, operating system. That was actually a step down from what they were originally going to suggest users make sure they had. They, they brought down the system requirements, not because the tech suddenly got more efficient, but probably more because Oculus wanted to diffuse some of the complaints that the system requirements to run the hardware at the recommended levels would mean you would need a, like a $1,000 PC on top of the $600 headset and controls, and now we're getting into really expensive territory. As it was, by reducing those requirements, it was closer to like a $500 PC. So you're still talking, you know, 1100 bucks total in order to have a, uh, a working Rift and PC combo, assuming you didn't already have the computer at your disposal. If you already did, if you were a gamer who already had an incredible system, then you were pretty much set. But for anyone who just wanted to get into it, this was a really big barrier to entry. So uh, cost is another hurdle to the adoption of virtual reality in general. It still is today. Uh, One thing that was monumental in Oculus's history between when it was developing its first system and when it released it was that Meta, which was just Facebook back then, acquired Oculus. So Meta bought Oculus. This was also when it became clear that Facebook would add another requirement to using Oculus hardware, 
users would need to link their system to a Facebook account. So if you didn't have one, you had to create one and link your account to your Oculus hardware, which rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. There were a lot of VR enthusiasts, people who had been supporting Oculus since the Kickstarter days, who were absolutely furious with the idea that this was going to have to be tied down to a Facebook account. These days, by the way, that has changed at least a little because now you no longer need to link your Oculus hardware to a Facebook account. You just need a meta account. And you might say that's a pretty fine distinction, and I would probably agree with you. All right. We've got more to talk about when it comes to the challenges of VR adoption and how that plays into the metaverse. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. 
Okay, so one way to address cost as a barrier to entry into any kind of technology is for the company that makes the tech to sell it at or below the cost of manufacturing. So in other words, the retail price for the item is the same or perhaps even less than what it cost you to make it in the first place. Now, why would you do that? You would lose money on every unit you sold. Well, if you're counting on the hardware to be a conduit for an ongoing source of revenue from customers, then it might be worth it to take a loss on the hardware sales price. Console manufacturers do this all the time. They sell customers a console that is near or sometimes below cost, and then they count on game sales and things like subscription services like Xbox Game Pass to make up for that gap. So yeah, they lose money selling the console, but they make money by selling you games and services. And so the console is just the entry point to, to grab you as a customer and to keep you for as long as they possibly can. You get benefit too out of it. It's not like it's purely parasitic. This is a symbiotic relationship here. But it is sort of the the gamble that these companies make is that they'll sell these, these initial pieces of hardware for a lower price than what it costs to make them. Often, not all the time. Not everyone does this, but a lot of companies do. So let's talk about some of the other Oculus models and then later what would be branded as Meta hardware uh, because the name has changed. Uh, Meta has eliminated Oculus as a brand, essentially, and replaced it with Meta. So the actual hardware, the the brand names have stayed the same, but the uh, or at least the model names, I should say, have stayed the same, but the brand has changed from Oculus to Meta. That, by the way, also rubbed a lot of Oculus supporters the wrong way because Meta, when it made the change, made the statement that they weren't making any changes to any of their various brands, uh, although they didn't mention Oculus at the time. And people say, well, the reason they didn't mention Oculus is that was a decision they had already made. They were getting rid of Oculus as a brand name. But anyway, in 2018, the company Facebook shipped the Oculus Go. Now, unlike the Rift, the Go was a standalone headset, so you didn't have to tether it to a PC. You had a headset that could be free of that cable connecting you to a computer. The headset used a Qualcomm Snapdragon 821 processor, which is the kind of processor you might find in a smartphone. And it ran on a version of the Android operating system and could run apps specifically designed for mobile-based VR experiences. Now, the Oculus Go was more aggressively priced at $199 for the base model, which was a 32 gigabyte storage model. Uh, or you could go up to the 64 gigabyte model for $249. Still much cheaper than the $600 asking price for the original Rift. However, it was also much more limited in power compared to the Rift, right? Because the Rift, again, was being powered by a PC. So depending on the type of PC you were using to send signals to your Rift, you would be having an incredibly sophisticated experience when compared to an Oculus Go, which was running more at a smartphone level. Now, Facebook would take the Oculus Go off the market in the summer of 2020. Essentially, the Go was being replaced, in fact, was already in the process of being replaced by a newer headset, the Oculus Quest. Now, the Quest had actually debuted in the spring of 2019, so there was some overlap between Oculus Go and Oculus Quest. The Quest 
like the Go, is also a standalone headset that runs on Android. It has more features than the Go did, and the cost reflects that, because the base model of the Oculus Quest was introduced at $399. This was a 64GB model. And the higher model, the 128GB model, was $499. Now, that's still cheaper than having to buy both a headset and a new PC, but the Quest could not measure up to the graphics quality of a PC-based VR system, so there were trade-offs. Yes, you didn't have to spend as much money as you would for one of the more sophisticated systems, but then you wouldn't have the capabilities of those more sophisticated systems. Now, the Quest would also get a successor. It got a successor in 2020 called the Oculus Quest 2, which these days is now called the Meta Quest 2. Originally, the base model of this hardware was priced at $299 for 64 gigabytes, and then the 128 gigabyte version was $399. Interestingly, starting this month, which is August of 2022, two years after the Oculus Quest 2 debuted, the price of both models has now increased by $100. That's unusual because typically you see price tags for tech go down after they've been out on the market for a couple of years. But that's not what we're seeing with the Quest 2. So imagine like you went to buy a PlayStation 5 and you find out that now the PS5 regular retail price has gone up by $100. You'd say, well, not only has this console been out for a while, uh, it hasn't been readily available because of chip shortages and, and such. Why is the price going up? Why would Facebook, now Meta, hike the price tag of this older technology? Well, there are a lot of potential reasons. Uh, One of them is that the company is struggling to attract new users and to grow as a company. Remember that company success is, is tightly tied to company growth in the stock market. And when you're not growing, investors start getting nervous because they feel like they're not going to get a good return on their investment. That's an oversimplification. It's also true. So, <laughs> so, uh, so Facebook slash Meta has spent billions of dollars on mixed reality and metaverse initiatives. These are not going to pay off for years to come. Mark Zuckerberg has said as much. This is not me passing judgment on Meta. Mark Zuckerberg has said it's going to take years of research and development to create the metaverse. And so we're going to be pouring billions of dollars in investments into that that realm. And it'll be a while before we see that mature, to see it emerge. So you could say that maybe increasing the price tag of these devices, which have been on the market for two years already, uh, is more about Meta trying to lose less money. It's not about them trying to make money off selling the hardware, but maybe have less of a loss as they sell the hardware. Because when you're talking to your investors on an earnings call and your loss numbers from your your Reality Labs division uh, are raising eyebrows, you start to think, maybe there are ways I can control spending a bit more while still investing in the field. Because I still believe that this is, I'm projecting into Mark Zuckerberg now, but I still believe in the metaverse idea. In order to get there, we're still going to have to invest, which means we are going to have to spend money, which means 
at the end of the day, when we have an earnings call, it's going to appear as a loss for that department. Maybe I can limit those losses in different places to take some of the sting out while we're also trying to increase our revenue in other arenas. Anyway, the hardware cost issue for the consumer hasn't really gone away. I've talked exclusively really about Oculus in this series or this episode rather, but there are lots of other companies that are making VR sets, whether they are standalones, like some of them make a VR equipment where you slot a smartphone into a headset and the smartphone acts as your processor and display. Others go the full custom uh, equipment approach. Some are tethered to PCs, some aren't, and they come at a range of prices, but they all tend to be pretty expensive. Uh, And this range, by the way, also creates confusion in the market, right? Because not all VR is the same. Something that's smartphone powered is not going to look or play like something that's running on a top of the line gaming PC. So for a lot of people, that that price is a prohibitive barrier to entry to get into virtual reality. That also serves as an obstacle that companies like Meta are going to have to figure out a way around if they want to bring their vision of metaverse, whatever that might turn into, into reality. If they want to have the same kind of level of adoption for the metaverse as what they've seen for social networking sites, they have to figure out this cost problem because with that price tag being that high, it's going to prevent tons of people from taking part in it. And then your metaverse is a non-starter. Like if I can afford to get into the metaverse, but none of my friends can, then where's my incentive to get into the metaverse? Like if, if everyone I know and love isn't able to access it, then it doesn't have a whole lot of appeal to me. So that's an issue that has to be solved. Now let's jump back into motion sickness because that's another big hurdle to the adoption of VR and thus a potential stumbling block on the way to the metaverse. So motion sickness from VR is often called cyber sickness. And for some people, the VR experience can be so unpleasant due to motion sickness that they'll swear it off after one bad experience. Uh, But interestingly, some folks at Iowa State University recently did a study on cyber sickness, and they wanted to test to see how long it would take people to adapt to the VR experience where they don't get cyber sickness or If they do, their symptoms are much less severe. That study observed that people who are prone to cybersickness usually start to feel the symptoms within 10 minutes of their VR experience. That is not very long. Like, if within 10 minutes of trying out a technology you start to feel sick, it could be a real tough sell to convince you that this is a technology you should be purchasing for your own use. The symptoms are pretty much the same as motion sickness. You know, you have nausea, headaches, dizziness, sweating. You get a sense that you're still moving even when you're you're sitting still. That to me is the worst. Uh, you also can have eye fatigue. I think that might have more to do with the fact that you're looking at a screen that's just a few inches away from your eyes. But because I don't, I don't associate eye fatigue with motion sickness, but it is a, a symptom of cyber sickness frequently. Now, if you've ever felt cyber sickness or seasickness or really any kind of motion sickness, you know how unpleasant that can be. And as I get older, I find myself more prone to it, unfortunately. Um, I'll never forget the time my wife and I, 
uh, did a park hopping trip at Disney World. We experienced three attractions that had VR elements to them. The first was Flights of Passage at Animal Kingdom. Uh, That's an Avatar-themed VR ride. It's incredible. I still have never seen the movie Avatar. So I was riding this ride going, I don't know what's happening, but it's pretty amazing. The second one we rode was Star Tours, which is at Hollywood Studios. That's, of course, a Star Wars-themed VR ride. The third was Soarin', which is uh, a ride where you sit on what's essentially a giant swing as you are in front of a huge panoramic uh, uh, screen that that has a projection film that gives you a sense that you're flying over various landscapes. And afterward, my wife and I both felt a little off. But it wasn't until we went to watch a 360-degree panoramic film in Epcot that we realized we had overdone it. And we spent many of the following hours sitting on a bench in Epcot's World Showcase Pavilion and feeling on the verge of being sick. Thankfully, neither of us went beyond the verge, but we were right up to the edge. And cybersickness is very much the same sort of thing. I mean, it really was cybersickness that we were experiencing. And, you know, when I first played an Oculus, an early developer kit version of the Oculus, I was put into a spaceflight simulator type game and within minutes discovered that I was not feeling well. So what's actually going on? Well, your inner ear and your brain are getting some mixed signals. Uh, These things help you maintain your balance. They detect things like acceleration. And when your brain is getting input that suggests you're moving around like crazy, and then another part of your brain is saying, hang on, we're totes not moving at all, then there can sometimes be a problem. This dissonance between these bits of our nervous system can cause us to feel sick. Now, I like to think it's the brain saying, I have no idea what's happening. Just go make them throw up. And then the brain storms out of a a door and slams it behind it. I don't know where the door goes to, but that's what I think. It's probably because of Homer Simpson. It's probably not what's going on from a neurological perspective, but it makes me contextualize it. Anyway, back to Iowa State University. The researchers got a test group of 150 undergrads, because, I mean, if you got undergrads, that's essentially guinea pigs. Go ahead, throw them into an experiment. And these undergrads would play a VR game. Uh, They started with a game called Jurassic World Aftermath. And the researchers said that they wanted to pick a VR title that was exciting enough so that players would want to continue playing the game. They would only stop if they weren't feeling well, instead of stopping because the game was boring. So they needed a game that was going to be compelling enough that the reason why someone would stop wouldn't be because they hated the game. So as the students played the game, they were asked every four minutes to kind of rate how they were feeling using a 10-point scale to indicate, you know, were they feeling really sick or were they feeling fine? And some folks would stop earlier than others because of cyber sickness. And they would come back to do additional sessions throughout the week. The researchers observed that through exposure, people would gradually get more used to VR and feel fewer or less intense symptoms of cyber sickness. And they found that three 20-minute sessions in a week could lead to significant improvements. They also, however, noted that there were outliers who showed less progress. Probably they are not a good fit for VR. And the study also found that in general, women have a harder time to adjust to VR and reduce symptoms of cyber sickness than men do. That's not to say that's true across the board. It's just that it was something that was more of a tendency they observed. That is a tough sell because you are asking customers to buy into a technology that costs a few hundred to several hundred, maybe even more than a thousand dollars. 
especially if you want a top end system, you might be talking about more than two grand or, or <laughs> that might just be a starting point if you want a really sick gaming rig that can also run VR. And on top of all that, the experience of using the equipment can be unpleasant, at least at first. So for some people, it might be insurmountable, which means they'll likely be left out of any metaverse implementation that depends upon mixed reality as an interface. So this is one of many reasons why I am skeptical of the metaverse. I just see that there are a lot of challenges we have to overcome in order to make it something that the general population can easily interact with. If it's not something the general population can easily interact with, it represents an enormous digital divide where the people who can afford it and the people who aren't getting sick from using it are able to access it and the rest of us can't which means all those amazing capabilities that are being promised in these discussions of the metaverse will only apply to a small slice of the population. That's why I am majorly skeptical of the metaverse, and I'm, I'm wary of it. Uh, even as I have to talk about it and occasionally sit on panels about it. So anyway, I thought I would really take the specific perspective of how virtual reality fits into that metaverse picture and use that for a text of tidbits that now is officially longer than most of my regular episodes. You're welcome. All right, I'm wrapping this up. If you would like to get in touch with me with topics for future episodes, let me know by taking on the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. Just go to the Tech Stuff page, use that little microphone. You can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. Let me know what you would like me to talk about or send me a message on Twitter. The handle we use there is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.